0: This episode is brought to you by GSK. Each year, there are thousands of deaths from vaccine-preventable diseases in the U.S. At GSK, we develop and manufacture vaccines to help protect people against diseases like flu, meningitis, and shingles. And by exploring innovative technologies, we're working to develop new vaccines against diseases previously beyond our reach. Because the more diseases we prevent, the more lives we can save. So when it comes to the question of who gets into college, how do we determine what is fair? And this is a question that does keep coming back to the Supreme Court, where the issue is what role should race play? Does fair mean that race should play no part whatsoever in the equation, leave it just up to grades and test scores, where history shows that on the whole Asians and whites do score better than blacks and Latinos, Or does fair mean let's find a way to crack the door open a little wider for blacks and Latinos in recognition of their historical challenges that are relevant in these cases, and also to bring them in in the name of diversity for the good of the whole university? And this is all in the spirit of what is known as affirmative action. And when it comes to fair... What does the Constitution have to say about these questions? Well, that sounds like the makings for a debate, so let's have it. Yes or no to this question. The Equal Protection Clause forbids racial preferences in state university admissions. A debate from Intelligence Squared U.S. in partnership with the National Constitution Center. We are at the Kaufman Music Center in New York City with four superbly qualified debaters who will argue for and against the motion the Equal Protection Clause forbids racial preferences in state university admissions. As always, our debate goes in three rounds. And as always, the audience votes to choose the winner and only one side wins. Let's meet the team arguing for the motion. First, ladies and gentlemen, Roger Clegg. Welcome, Roger. You are a President General Counsel of the Center for Equal Opportunity. Uh, You served in the Reagan and Bush administrations, and you have argued that affirmative action is actually at odds with the civil rights movement. I want to ask you, is that always the case, or what if we went back 50 or 60 years? What would you have said?
1: Well, I think that the original meaning of affirmative action, which was taking positive steps to get rid of discrimination, was a good idea back then, and it's still a good idea. But racial preferences, which is the specific kind of affirmative action that we're talking about tonight, was a bad idea then, and it's certainly a bad idea now.
0: And the point you'll be arguing tonight. And tell us who your partner is in that argument.
1: It's lovely and talented Stuart Taylor, who is uh, with the uh, Brookings Institution and the author of the book Mismatch. Let's welcome Stuart Taylor. All right, Stuart, we just heard the name
0: of your book. The interesting thing about you is that that you started out as a reporter and then you became a lawyer, you went to Harvard, and then you went back to being a journalist again. So why cover the law
2: as opposed to practicing it? Well, it's confusing, but the first duty of a good lawyer is to serve clients' interests. The first duty of a good journalist is to tell the truth. I prefer that. (laughs) All right, (laughs) ladies and gentlemen, the, the team
0: arguing for the motion. And that motion is the Equal Protection Law Clause forbids racial preferences in state university admissions. We have two debaters arguing against it. Please, first, let's welcome Deborah Archer. Deborah, welcome. You're a professor at New York Law School, where you serve as co-director of the Impact Center for Public Interest Law. You're dean of diversity and inclusion. You've also served as assistant counsel at the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund. Among your law students, does the the majority come down uh, on either side of the constitutionality question of affirmative action?
3: I would say the majority support affirmative action programs. I think as students, they're in a unique position to really see the way that diversity is benefiting their education.
0: And again, you'll be arguing that point tonight. Thank you very much, Deborah Archer. And your partner is?
3: My partner is leading constitutional law scholar, Dean Erwin Chemerinsky.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, Erwin Chemerinsky. Okay, so you, your partner said the word dean. You are the founding dean, Erwin Chemerinsky, of the law school at University of California, Irvine. You saw in California a state that passed Proposition 209 back in 1996, which, in which voters uh, banned affirmative action in university admissions. So as you've seen
4: it in the system there, what's been the result? Proposition 209 has substantially reduced diversity in the University of California especially Berkeley and UCLA. Okay, again, all grist for the mill for
0: the debate we're going to have tonight. The team arguing against the motion, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) Let's move on to round one. Round one are opening statements by each debater in turn. Our first debater will be arguing for the motion. The Equal Protection Clause forbids racial preferences in state university admissions. Up first is Stuart Taylor, Stuart Taylor is non-resident fellow at the Brookings Institution and co-author of the book, Mismatch, How Affirmative Action Hurts Students It's Intended to Help and Why Universities Won't Admit It. Ladies and
2: gentlemen, Stuart Taylor. Thank you and good evening. Um, Roger Batting Cleanup will focus on uh, how racial preferences violate the clear text and bedrock principles of the 14th Amendment. I focus on facts showing how the large racial preference is very large, used by almost all selective universities in the country, violate each of several equal protection rules laid down by the Supreme Court in its four uh, racial preference and admissions precedents. The first of those rules, I'll read it, a race-conscious admission program may not unduly harm members of any racial group. The first racial preference harm uh, whites, and Asians who are excluded to admit less qualified members of racially preferred groups, they're harmed, clearly. Uh, Asian Americans in particular are the victims of systematic racial discrimination by just about all of the top universities in America. But the most grievously harmed victims, we think, are the Hispanic and African American, especially because they receive the largest racial preferences, who are misled by universities into thinking that they're going to do well academically when the universities know that on average they're not going to do well because of their entering credentials. Uh, The average black uh, 12th grader is about four years behind the average white 12th grader. We have fewer black and Hispanic lawyers, doctors, engineers, and scientists than we would if all universities had race-neutral admissions programs. Because the people who are doing badly at universities where they're not well-qualified would be doing well at universities where they're competitive. This pattern is called mismatch. Uh, The university's pervasive dishonesty about the size of racial preferences and about their academic effects on the supposed beneficiaries denies these people the opportunity to make informed decisions about where they want to go to college. Universities must demonstrate, before they turn to racial preferences, that race-neutral alternatives do not suffice to provide adequate diversity. The Supreme Court has said that, more or less verbatim. No university of which I know has ever made the slightest effort to explore race-neutral alternatives to racial preferences to promote diversity. Now, there's a very, very obvious race-neutral alternative, which is class-based recruitment and preferences for uh, working class and poor students of all races, and there's a large supply of pretty strong uh, academic students in that that category. Such class-based preferences would add more diversity of background and of viewpoint than racial preferences do. But instead of trying class-based preferences, universities systematically prefer well-off black and Hispanic students over less well-off white and Asian students who are better qualified academically. The third Supreme Court equal protection rule holds that outright racial balancing is patently unconstitutional. And the facts on that are pretty brief. The information all over the country screams the conclusion that virtually all these universities are using outright racial balancing in the face of rough targets uh, for how many students in each racial group, which they strive to meet. Stuart
0: Taylor, I'm sorry, your time is up. Thank you. Thank you very much. Our motion is the Equal Protection Clause forbids racial preferences in state university admissions, and here to make his opening statement against the motion, Erwin Chemerinsky, founding dean and distinguished professor of law at the University of California, Irvine School
4: of Law. Every Supreme Court case to consider the issue has held that affirmative action by college and universities is constitutional. The Supreme Court for decades has said that colleges and universities may use race, is one fact among many to enhance diversity and benefit minorities. I'm going to make three points. First, the Constitution says no state shall deny any person equal protection of the laws. Notice it doesn't say that everyone has to be treated the same. To the extent that students are different based on their history, based on what they bring to the campus, they must be treated differently. Notice it also doesn't say that the government must be colorblind. The 14th Amendment could have been written that way, but it wasn't. Throughout American history, the Supreme Court has recognized that equal protection allows the government to take race into account. The very Congress that ratified the 14th Amendment adopted color-based programs, things we call affirmative action today, like the Freedmen's Bureau. It's why the Supreme Court repeatedly has said Colleges and universities can engage in affirmative action. My second point is that affirmative action serves compelling purposes, especially diversity. We cannot discuss affirmative action outside of the context of American history. Throughout American history, there have been separate and unequal schools based on race. Just a couple of decades ago, Harvard professor Christopher Jenks found that an average 20% less is spent on African American child's elementary and secondary school compared to a white child's elementary and secondary school. Today, about 90% of the students in private schools are white. The reality is that race matters enormously in how all of us experience society. Racial diversity helps to bring cross-racial understanding. It breaks down stereotypes. It prepares students for the multicultural world in which they'll exist. And my third point is, there is no other way to achieve diversity This has been the experience in states that have tried to eliminate affirmative action. In California, after Proposition 209, there's a dramatic decrease in the presence of African American and Latino students, especially at UCLA and Berkeley. There are still fewer African American students today at UCLA than were prior to 1996. There are dramatically fewer African American and Latino students at Berkeley and UCLA law schools compared to Stanford and USC. But affirmative action programs work. Take the University of Texas program that's now before the Supreme Court. They look at race as one of many factors in admissions. In addition to grades and test scores and two letters of recommendation, race is just one of six factors. And yet doing that, together with taking the top 10% of high schools across the state, meant there was a 20% increase in African-American students, a 15% increase in Latino students. To vote for the affirmative tonight, you must find one of two things. Either they must convince you that diversity is unimportant, disagreeing with the Supreme Court and almost every university in the country, or they must convince you that there is some other way to achieve diversity besides what we're discussing. No college or university has found it yet. I'm John Donvan.
0: Round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate continues in just a moment. And a reminder of what's going on, we are halfway through the opening round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan. We have four debaters, two against two, arguing for and against this motion, the Equal Protection Clause forbids racial preferences and state university admissions. You have heard from the first two debaters, and now on to the third. Debating for the motion, here is Roger Clegg, President and General Counsel of the Center
1: for Equal Opportunity. Let's begin by reading the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. No state shall deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. Note that it doesn't say anything about protecting some races differently from other races. Now, it's sometimes said that the Constitution means what the Supreme Court says it means, and I don't buy that completely, But it's worth pointing out here that the basic approach the court has taken is the correct one, that all Americans are protected from racial discrimination and that exceptions to this rule will be allowed only in extraordinary circumstances when the government has a really, 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 really good reason to discriminate and no other way to accomplish this compelling end except through racial discrimination. So do we have that in the case of racial preferences? In state university admissions. We do not. And this is where the Supreme Court has gotten it wrong and where I hope it will correct itself in the year ahead. What the court has said and what our opponents are arguing tonight is that what some students say in random conversations in and outside campus classrooms might be so insightful and so unlikely and difficult to be learned in any other way besides these random conversations, that it is worth denying admission to some white and Asian American students because of their race, so that other white and Asian American students might hear these random observations. That's it. That is what universities are arguing. I don't think that that is compelling at all. But there's something else that you need to keep in mind tonight. Even if you think that there is something to that argument, you have to weigh against that purported benefit the costs of racial discrimination. And in my remaining time, I'm going to run through them. It's personally unfair, passes over better qualified students, and sets a disturbing legal, political, and moral precedent in allowing racial discrimination. It creates resentment. It stigmatizes the so-called beneficiaries in the eyes of their classmates, teachers, and themselves, as well as future employers, clients, and patients. It fosters a victim mindset, removes the incentive for academic excellence, and encourages separatism. It compromises the academic mission of the university and lowers the overall academic quality of the student body. It creates pressure to discriminate in grading and graduation. It breeds hypocrisy within the school and encourages a scofflaw attitude among college officials. It papers over the real social problem of why so many African Americans and Latinos are academically uncompetitive. That's a problem that should be addressed, but we are not, there's not the urgency to address it because of the existence of racial preferences. It gets... States, state governments, and their schools involved in unsavory activities like deciding which racial and ethnic minorities will be favored and which ones not, an untenable legal regime in an America that is becoming increasingly multiracial and multiethnic. I think that it is very hard to say that all of those costs are outweighed by anything that might be learned in a random campus conversation. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Roger Clegg. And the motion is the Equal Protection Clause forbids racial preferences in state university admissions. And here to make her opening statement against this motion, Deborah Archer. She is professor of law and director of the Racial Justice Project at New York Law School. Ladies and gentlemen, Deborah Archer.
3: It bears repeating that the United States Supreme Court has repeatedly held that race conscious admissions programs in public colleges and universities are constitutional, with substantial, not trivial, substantial benefits that flow to the educational institution, the larger society, and individual students. Pursuing the educational value of a racially diverse student body is a compelling state interest. The court has already held that universities cannot have specific racial targets, universities cannot set aside spots for students of certain racial backgrounds, and universities can't consider race in an inflexible manner. The Equal Protection Clause permits colleges and universities to consider many characteristics, including sexual orientation, political persuasion, gender, whether or not you're from Ohio. We can't exclude race and only race from that list of considerations. Now, the statistics that have been cited by the proponents of this resolution about disparities and outcomes for students of color are indeed troubling But every assertion that they make is contested, and none can be the basis of a constitutional rule. The methods and and conclusions they've reached have been criticized and rejected by almost every social scientist who has examined the data. There have been many studies that have found no evidence whatsoever of mismatch. There are numerous studies that say affirmative action programs have unequivocally benefited minority students and society. There are studies that say minority students fare far better the higher-ranked school that they attend. And very importantly, there are studies that say the problem of undermatching, where students with strong academic credentials attend lower-ranked schools even though they could get accepted to higher-ranked schools, is far more a problem for minority students than mismatches. To assess the impact of race-conscious admissions programs, we must first acknowledge the critical factors that contribute to any alleged black or Latino underperformance in the classroom. And those include racial discrimination, inadequate K through 12 education systems. They include stereotype threat. The gap between the performance of some minority students and some white students is quite troubling. But race-conscious admissions programs are not the cause of those troubles. Finally, the argument that race conscious admissions programs should be outlawed because minority students end up attending schools that are academically too challenging for them, quite frankly, is condescending. It inappropriately seeks to displace the independent, informed judgment of minority students about the potential costs and benefits of attending flagship universities and colleges. We should want all of our students to aim high and challenge themselves. We shouldn't be settling for less for minority students. The individual, harms, the individual harms that affirmative action opponent's claim will befall minority students have not come to pass. There is no causal connection between race-conscious admissions programs and racial stigma. It's never been established. The fact remains the root causes of racial stigma reach back much further than race-conscious admissions programs. Stamping all minority students with badges of inferiority by assuming they lack qualifications is racial discrimination. The fact that there will be racists who assume that every black person or Latino person that he or she sees is unqualified cannot dictate the reach or meaning of the Constitution. The motion asks you to assess the constitutionality of race-conscious admissions programs, not whether affirmative action is good policy, but on either question... The proponents of this motion are wrong, and I urge you to vote against the motion.
0: Thank you, Deborah Archer. And the motion is the Equal Protection Clause forbids racial preferences in state university admissions. And that concludes round one of this Intelligence Squared US debate. Now we move on to round two, and round two is where the debaters address one another directly, and they take questions from me and from you in our live audience here in New York. The motion is the Equal Protection Clause forbids racial preferences in state university admissions we've heard two debaters arguing for the motion Stuart Taylor and Roger Clegg they say look at the text of the 14th amendment no state shall deny to any person in its jurisdiction the equal protection of under the laws and they're saying the text uh, is already violated by affirmative action because affirmative action is in itself a form of discrimination. They're arguing that it brings harm to all races, including the races that it is intended to benefit. The team arguing against the motion, Deborah Archer and Erwin uh are saying nowhere does it say that the Equal Protection Clause says that the government is required to be colorblind, that the amendment was adopted by a Congress that absolutely had historically affirmative action in mind that the harms that their opponents have spelled out as mismatch are not real and that the Supreme Court has repeatedly upheld uh, affirmative action's goal of diversity as a compelling interest. So I want to start slicing up some of the arguments that have been made already, but I want to say that I already see the challenge that we're going to have in that a lot of what we heard were arguments about whether affirmative action is good policy or not and less on the question of whether it is constitutional or not, whether racial preferences in state university admissions are constitutional or not, which is what you're going to be asked to vote on. I heard more of that argument from the opposing side than from the fore side. So I want to take something that the opposing side said and bring it to the fore side. When they said that the text of the amendment does not say anything about the government's obligation to be colorblind. So they're they are challenging in a very fundamental way your interpretation of what we mean by equal protection under the laws. So they say nowhere does it say you can't make these kinds of uh, arguments. Roger Clay, can you respond?
1: Well, um, what it says is that you can't deny equal protection of the laws. It doesn't say that you have to be colorblind, but in context uh, what it's saying is that you can't uh, deny equal protection uh, to people because of their skin color. That's basically the same thing as saying that uh, you have to be colorblind unless you have a really, really good reason.
0: Uh, Let's take it to your opponents, Erwin Timuriski.
4: No Supreme Court case in history has ever equated equal protection with colorblindness. That's because that's not what equal means. Equal means you treat people who are alike alike and those who are different different. People are different based on race, based on the experiences they've had in society. That's why racial diversity matters so much in colleges and universities. You know, this business that people are different uh, because of their
1: race sounds like something I would have heard maybe 100 years ago in favor of Jim Crow. <laughs> <laughs> Deborah Archer.
3: I don't think that we're saying that people are different because of their race or that people think one way or another that a black or Latino student is going to hold a certain position because they are black or Latino. But I think what we are saying in the context of affirmative action programs is that race influences the way we view the world. It it influences how we perceive the things that go on day to day. So although we wouldn't expect a black or Latino student to hold a certain position – We would anticipate that a black or Latino student's race would have influenced whatever position it is that they're holding.
1: And I think it's fine for. All right, Roger, you go, you'll get to. I think it's fine for schools to try to uh, bring in students who have a uh, diversity of backgrounds and perspectives. The problem is when you use skin color or what country your ancestors came from as a proxy for those backgrounds and experiences. You can't look at somebody and say, oh, you're black, you must have this background and this perspective. You've got to look at the individual.
3: That's actually ignoring exactly what I said. It's not that someone is saying you're black, you hold this perspective. We're saying that you're black. I'm sure that the fact that you are black in an America where race very much matters, where we're still fighting and battling against racial discrimination impacts the way that you see the world, whatever that perspective is.
4: I've been a law professor now For 36 years I've taught subjects like criminal procedure And constitutional law in classes that are almost All white and in classes with a substantial Number of minority students When you talk about things like racial profiling Police the discussion is Vastly different we have a significant number Of students of color who've experienced it Compared to an all white class
0: Stuart Taylor in responding to that How does the How does the issue of the goal of diversity work into the constitutionality argument here?
2: Well, the Supreme Court has made diversity, which originally meant diversity of thought, but has migrated towards racial diversity, the touchstone for whether a racial preference program is legal or not. But I think the court has laid down principles under which most racial preference programs in the country would be struck down if the court enforced them as written. There have been a lot of 5-4 cases where the principles, and I mentioned a couple of them, as in no harm to any racial members of any racial group, they have upheld some programs that, in my opinion, did not... Uh, conform to their own principles. All right.
0: So one of the points that you made there, and also in your opening statement, is that the, you're saying that the equal protection clause is violated by virtue of the fact that there are that Asians are harmed as a result. And so I want to take that to your opponents, Deb Archer.
3: Not all Asian and Asian-American students have access to high-quality education. They aren't all as successful. Cambodian students, Laotian students, do not fare as well academically as Korean students or Japanese students or Chinese students. Laotian and Cambodian students have lower graduation rates than black students. And so to say that Asian students don't benefit from affirmative action is just simply wrong. It's a wedge issue. They're trying to wedge Put a wedge between the. Let the me bring Roger Clagan
0: because we haven't heard
1: from you in, in a few minutes. So, well, they, they admit. Uh, I think what they just admitted was that Chinese American students and Japanese American students and Korean American students are being discriminated against uh, by the use of racial preferences. But that's okay because there's the possibility that Laotian American students and Filipino American students. May get preferential treatment. And somehow or other, that makes it okay.
3: That's actually not at all what I said.
1: Well, well I think that is what you said.
3: Let's, let,
4: <laughs> let, let's let Irwin respond. Mr. I don't Mr. Think- Clegg, Mr. Clegg, mischaracterized mission. We are not saying discriminating against anybody based on race is okay. I want to go to <laughs> your That's, question. So you're what? saying no repor- col- no, col- What's please. a racial please. preference? A racial what's uh, preference?
2: a racial preference if it's not discrimination based on race?
4: Erwin, are you going to answer that very well phrased question? Yes. Directly? Directly. All right. No college or university ever has accepted students based on just grades and test scores. I taught for a long time at USC. I'd venture to say the football players there had lower grades and test scores than other students. That's because they brought some other talent to the forefront. There are a much larger pool of students who are qualified due to do the work than the number will be accepted. And so in deciding among them, many factors go into consideration. It is not discrimination to say that one of the things that's considered, in addition to athletic talent, is also what does a student add based on his or her race to the diversity of the school. It's wrong to equate preference with discrimination. Stuart Taylor. I think think the case that's
2: made publicly... There is no doubt that many Asians with grades and test scores far higher than anybody else's are being rejected by colleges because they're Asians. Hang There's a no thing. doubt about Do you, do about you, doubt, that at do you all. doubt that? Yes,
3: because okay. they're Asians. Absolutely. I think because
2: they're Asians. But the rationale, not used here tonight, but often used for this is, well, the people we're accepting are better in other ways. They have better leadership qualities. They contribute more diversity, whatever. This is a slur on Asian Americans. The idea that, well, if they have higher test scores and grades, they've got other qualities that aren't as good. And a quick point on test scores and grades. Um, Irwin, I think, said all of us would be against large racial preferences. Well, I think we just won the debate. If all you have to establish is that the racial preferences are large, that's undisputed. There are 300 to 400 SAT point average differences in a lot of the colleges. There are corresponding GPA differences. There are huge achievement differences within the college, and, uh, and that's pretty
4: large. No, but we're not debating. We're not arguing here about what's the best form of affirmative action. The resolution you're asked to vote on is, does equal protection forbid racial preferences? In order to vote affirmative, you have to conclude that all racial preferences, however small or unconstitutional, no court case has ever said that.
3: I also want to just make a quick point. You said that, that there are large racial preferences is undisputed. That's not true. There are many people, many prominent social scientists who dispute everything that you've said before. And I think we need to take a step back because everyone else is using the term preference. I'm not because I don't think it's a preference. What universities are doing, hundreds of universities around the country, what they're doing is looking at the whole application. It's not a preference. If it was a preference, we'd have far more than 20% black and Latino students at most colleges and universities. I also want to dispute the use of the word discrimination. Um, Erwin mentioned this. There is no symmetry between race conscious measures that seek to include traditionally excluded groups and invidious discrimination that seeks to include people because of a sense of superiority or hatred.
0: I'm John Donvan. Questions from the audience and the results of tonight's debate still to come on Intelligence Squared U.S. I want to remind you that we are in the question and answer section of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan, your moderator. We have four debaters, two teams of two, arguing it out over this motion. The Equal Protection Clause forbids racial preferences in state university admissions. Right down front here, sir. Uh,
2: my name is Russ Neely. Uh, I want to ask Erwin and, and Deborah if there could be such a things as bad diversities diversities that have harmful effects on the way people of different races perceive each other. I'm
0: going to stop you there because you actually asked a really good question and I need to give everybody a chance so why don't you go with the question. Thank you.
4: What study after study has found is that interracial association does break down stereotypes. That interracial association in college, in law school, in medical school better prepares those who are graduating to deal with a multicultural workforce. And common sense bears that. If we deal with those who are different from us, we're then better prepared to deal with those like them in the future. Roger Clegg? I think that in
1: order to answer that, we talk, first of all, about whether there is anything good that comes from these random interracial conversations. Uh, that, That premise is weak. I think it's even weaker when you consider that a lot of these lessons could be achieved through means that don't involve racial discrimination you don't have to rely on these, the happenstance of these conversations in order to teach students that not all black people think the same
3: way. Real, substantive discussions about race are difficult. It's the first time that many people are having those conversations because we are incredibly segregated in K-12 through education, and we are getting more segregated, and the Supreme Court has tied our hands there. We are segregated in our communities and in our housing. The Supreme Court just recently recognized last term that it's growing with racial isolation in our communities. Where we can start to bring people together to have these important discussions to gain these skills um, of cross-racial conversations is in colleges and universities.
0: Back row, uh, against the wall there.
3: Hi, Hallie Potter from the Century Foundation. Um, One of the legal tests for affirmative action that has been held up by the court most recently in the Fisher decision was that you have to show that race-neutral alternatives are not sufficient to create racial diversity. Both sides have talked about this, but not a lot about the evidence behind that. Do we actually have examples of universities that have seriously tried both racial affirmative action and socioeconomic affirmative action so that we can answer that question? Let me take
2: it to the fourth side first. Which of you? Uh, Stuart Taylor. There may be an example here or there, I see. Dean Chemerinsky waving his arms, so I don't want to say anything too absolute. But by and large, the vast majority of selective American schools have been shamefully neglectful of any responsibility they might have to socioeconomically disadvantaged people. They want to fill their racial numbers. They're happy to fill them with immigrants. They're happy to fill them with children of millionaires. They don't care,
4: by and large. Irwin, That's just wrong. I've been on admissions committees at three different law schools. We certainly do look to students who are the first in their family to go to college. There have been many attempts to try to create race-neutral ways of achieving diversity. The University of Texas showed that everything else that it tried failed, which is why the United States Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit, where the conservative judge Patrick higginbotham writing, said Texas had proven no alternative. Or take UCLA as an example. They've tried all sorts of alternatives, and they still have fewer African Americans today than before 1996. The reason just looking at socioeconomic stacks doesn't work, the percentage of African Americans and Latinos who are disadvantaged is higher than the percentage of whites, but the sheer number of whites who are disadvantaged is greater. So focus on socioeconomics, which is important, won't yield racial diversity. And Roger Clegg, your
0: opponents have been saying throughout the debate that there that there is no other way than including racial preferences.
1: Well, certainly, you know, if what you're trying to do is meet a racial quota, there is no better way to no, no, meet but, that but, racial but, quota but than no, by considering race. But Roger, uh, no, but the, 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 seriously, the the, no, the, the,
0: serious. but the goal the goal is not let's include a racial quota. The Supreme Court's language is diversity is a compelling interest, and
1: and so you're just you think it's a cynical argument? Yeah. Well, I I, I think that if, if if schools are saying that well, in order to hit our racial numbers, we really have to take race into account. You know, I, th- I think that's, that's plausible. But first of all, um, I think that uh, Irwin is wrong in saying that the University of Texas uh, has not been extremely successful in using the top 10% plan. Uh, there's actually, you know, more diversity uh, under the top 10% plan than there had been when the University of Texas was using quotas. Now they want to uh, reimpose uh, <laughs> racial preferences on top of the top 10% plan because – and, and – Uh, They want to ensure that the African-Americans who are admitted come from well-to-do families rather than those poor uh, African-American students who are being admitted under the top 10% plan. Deborah Archer.
3: Just a quick point about uh, top 10% plans generally, and the one in Texas. They work because there is racial segregation in our communities, in our public schools. You're able to get diversity through top 10% plans because Black people in Texas have attend predominantly Black schools, and White people in Texas pre- attend predominantly White schools. And so, the top 10% of any class is going to um, demonstrate that kind of racial isolation. There's something really perverse about telling a university that in order to achieve the benefits of a racially diverse class, you have to rely on racial segregation in K-12 education.
2: I don't think there's anything perverse about the Texas 10% plan. They not only get racial diversity, they get class diversity. Getting class diversity is good. And so now the idea is that they need overt racial preferences so they can get some wealthy black kids in there because they've got plenty of... Uh, relatively poor black kids and Hispanic kids. But that that's a that bad begins thing. to sound a little strange. You
3: don't want to have all of but, your class diversity be but, no. the same as your racial diversity so that all you have are poor black students and all you have are poor Latino students. That only reinforces stereotypes. It doesn't help to break down stereotypes.
0: On the, on the stereotype.
3: uh, Kelly Gerstenhaber, Columbia University. So there's a, there's a pretty well established racially prejudiced testing bias that we see from, since kids are age four.
2: Might it be a fair interpretation of equal protection that you know,
3: affirmative action offsets this racial bias?
0: Let's put a question first to... I, th- th- I
2: think the complete Stuart rebuttal Taylor. to that, and I respect the question, is that the whole bi- idea of the SATN scores, so the usual, grading, usual criteria for admissions, is that they predict how well people will do. So if there was a racial bias against blacks in SAT, they would do better in college, one would expect, than their SAT scores for, for predict. In fact, they do worse in college than their SAT scores predict. They do worse in law school than LSAT scores predict. Erwin Schmerzky.
4: What you say is right. Many studies have demonstrated that there is a cultural and racial bias to standardized tests. There is only a very weak correlation between the LSAT and first-year law school grades, no correlation between the LSAT and second- and third-year grades, and no proven correlation to the LSAT and what somebody's going to be as a lawyer. So let's not assume that these tests really measure qualifications.
0: All right. In the the, the last few minutes we have, we're, we're going to do what sometimes we do in these debates. We call it our volley round, and what we want to do is we want to look in a very, very short period of time, sort of cut to the chase on the issues that are before us. And the way this works is that each debater, it'll take two minutes, each debater gets 30 seconds to answer a question I'm going to put. They all answer the same question. When their 30 seconds are up, they have to stop talking because I will do that. (laughs) And my question is, when we talk about equal protection under the laws... What do we mean by equal in the context of this debate we're having about racial preferences? What constitutes equal? Do, uh, I'm going to start with this side. Which of you would like to go first? I, I'm happy to take it. Roger Clegg,
1: Roger Clegg. so your 30 seconds starts now. The answer is that we do not treat people differently because of the color of their skin or what country their ancestors came from. You're, you're done with your 30 seconds. On the opposing side, Deborah Archer.
3: I think the history and the purpose of the Equal Protection Clause shows that equal... Uh, doesn't mean colorblind.
2: Stuart, Stuart Taylor. I agree with Roger, and, and I would also add that once you start saying some people are more equal than others, to borrow from Orwell, uh, with a multiracial society like we have, you get into an impossible racial spoils system where everybody's struggling for their little racial slice of the pie.
4: Erwin Temerinsky. One thing we're doing is discussing this out of the context of American history. We're not talking about the long history of separate and unequal schools. We're not talking about the long history of discrimination against African Americans. The purpose of the Equal Protection Clause was especially to prohibit subordination of minorities, try to get a more equal society based on race. That's why the same Congress that ratified the 14th Amendment also adopted programs that today we would call affirmative action. And that concludes... Our volley round and round two of this intelligence squared U.S. debate where our motion is the equal
0: protection clause forbids racial preferences in state university admissions. Now we move on to round three. Round threes are closing statements from each debater in turn. First speaking for the motion, the equal protection clause forbids racial preferences in state university admissions. Stuart
2: Taylor, journalist and co-author of the book, Mismatch. To look at a little recent history, very recent, consider the anguish of Imani Marshall, She's a senior pre-med student at Amherst, which is a private university, but the racial preference system works the same there as in the state universities. She started to cry at a recent gathering when another student said she went to sleep every night wishing she would not wake up. Now, both of these students are African Americans, and that was sort of the context. Uh, Ms. Marshall said she felt unprepared academically and socially for Amherst. Remember, she was identifying with a woman who was suicidal, so she was pretty feeling pretty bad about this. She was reluctant, she said, to ask for help for fear of undermining the standing of herself and her race. She added, I feel like an imposter. I feel like I need to prove myself to people to believe that I prove that I belong here. Her anguish is understandable. It's touching, but she mentioned no experience of racism. Instead, she may be a victim of large racial preferences and her school's failure to warn her about their academic consequences. Of course, they also harm better prepared Asians and whites who get turned away, as we've discussed. This destructive system violates the Equal Protection Clause. Also, let's recall the Supreme Court's statement in 2003 that equal protection forbids permanent racial preferences. That's not in other words, diversity doesn't mean anything goes, forbids permanent racial preferences. A question I have for Professor Archer and Dean Chemerinsky should racial preferences end by 2028, as the Supreme Court said in 2003, or 2050, or 2100, or 2200, or is this system of racial discrimination forever? Please listen for the answer and please vote for the proposition. The Equal Protection Clause forbids racial preferences in state university admissions. Thank you, Stuart Taylor. And that is our motion. And here to make his closing statement against
0: the motion, Erman Chemerinsky, Dean of the University of California, Irvine School of Law.
4: When I stood at the lectern, I issued a challenge to my opponents. I said you can only vote affirmative if you find one of two things. Either they have to convince you that diversity in the classroom is unimportant, or they must convince you there's another way to achieve diversity. I think they failed at both of those questions. As to the former, diversity is compelling. The Supreme Court has said it time and again, that's why every college and university I know of engages in affirmative action, some form of what we're tonight calling racial preference. Diversity matters in preparing all of our students for the society that they're going to deal with. The second question is, is there any other way to achieve diversity? The reason college universities engage in affirmative action is none has found an alternative. We've talked in generalities. And I've got statistics. The University of California Davis Medical School found that with some form of affirmative action, they would average less than one African-American or Latino student a year in an entering class of 100. When Proposition 209 was passed in California, five years after, at University of Southern California Law School, a private school, 11.4% of the students were African-American. At Stanford Law School, 9.6% of the students were African-American. But at the University of California at Berkeley, only 3.2% of the students are African-American. And at UCLA Law School, only 2.4% of the students were African-American. Without affirmative action, because of our legacy discrimination and continuing discrimination, we will not have diversity in higher education. How do you feel about the idea of elite college universities with almost no African-American or Latino students? That's what the affirmative is asking you to vote for. We are not here tonight to argue whether there should be large racial preferences. We're not here, Stewart, to argue there should be permanent racial preferences. No one favors that. To vote affirmative, you must conclude that no racial preferences ever are constitutional. You must overrule decades of Supreme Court jurisprudence. Don't do it. Vote negative. Thank you, Erin Komarinsky. And the motion is the Equal Protection
0: Clause forbids racial preferences in state university admissions. And here summarizing his position in support of the motion, Roger Clegg, President and General Counsel of the Center for Equal Opportunity.
1: Let me make one point at the outset. You've heard a lot about disputed social science evidence. And I would say that, yes, this social science evidence is to some extent disputed. I think that we have the better argument. But if the evidence is disputed, then I think the other side loses because there cannot be a compelling interest in something if it's not clear if that interest exists at all. Now, what you have to decide tonight is which of two very different visions of the role the Constitution allows race to play in state university admissions is. Our opponents think that it is fine if state education officials, for the foreseeable future, and probably forever, look at the skin color and national origin of the students who apply to help determine who gets in. I don't think that this is the vision of the people who wrote the words of the 14th Amendment or the people who ratified it right after the Civil War had been fought. I think that when they said that no state shall deny to any person the equal protection of the laws, they said no to that kind of discrimination. The institutionalization of racial discrimination that our opponents support will become harder and harder to dismantle with every tick of the clock. It is not consistent with the vision that we should have for our increasingly multiracial and multiethnic society. In that society, by the way, blacks and whites are now the slowest growing groups The fastest-growing group is Asian Americans, and then Latinos, and then people who are themselves multiracial. For a society like that to work, there has to be mutual respect. And for mutual respect, we must all be judged by the same standards. And we must know that other people are being judged by the same standards, too. Please vote for the motion. Thank you, Roger Clegg. And that
0: motion is the Equal Protection Clause. Forbids racial preferences in state university admissions and here making her closing statement against the motion, Deborah Archer, professor of law at New York Law School.
3: I very quickly just want to respond to something that was said, that because there's some dispute, very little dispute about whether or not mismatch um, exists, that it can't be the basis to say that diversity is a compelling interest. It's important to note the Supreme Court in the first Fisher case received all the information and data about mismatch and still ruled that diversity is a compelling state interest. The 14th Amendment isn't about colorblindness. It is about equal citizenship. Indeed, the purpose of the 14th Amendment was to constitutionalize race-conscious admissions programs. The framers of the 14th Amendment understood that considering race is sometimes necessary to achieve equality. It is perverse to argue that the constitutional amendment created to help turn America away from its legacy of racial oppression requires us to limit the opportunities available to students of color. Racial diversity in education is important, and it is compelling – It is not about discriminating against anyone. It's not about denying opportunities to anyone because of their race. Race is not the only factor, and it's not the deciding factor. I have certainly personally been a beneficiary of affirmative action programs, but I didn't get into college or into law school because of my race. Did the law school consider the fact that I'm a black woman, the child of immigrants, or the first person in my family to graduate from college when it accepted me? Did it consider the fact that I was raised in a racially segregated neighborhood, then moved to a white suburb where I experienced racial discrimination? I hope so, because without it, they have no idea who I really am, and they have no idea what it took for me to get to where I am. My SAT scores, my LSAT scores, my GPA certainly did not tell my whole story. The Constitution promises equality to all people, regardless of race. Today, race matters not because it should, but because it does. And there is nothing in the Equal Protection Clause that says we have to ignore that reality. I urge you to vote against the motion. Thank Thank
0: you. you, Deborah Archer. And that concludes closing statements for this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. Where our motion is, the Equal Protection Clause forbids racial preferences in state university admissions. And now it's time to learn which side you feel has argued the best here. The team whose numbers changed the most will be our winner. Let's look at the results of the first vote. In the opening vote on this motion, 27% agreed, 30% disagreed, 43% were undecided. So that is the first vote. Let's look at the beginning of the second vote. Let's look at the team arguing for the motion, the Equal Protection Clause for Bids, Racial Preferences, and State University Admissions. First vote, 27%. Second vote, 32%. They picked up five percentage points. That is the number to beat. Let's look at the team against. Their first vote was 30%. Their second vote was 62%. They pulled up 32 percentage points, making them our winner. The motion has been defeated. The Equal Protection Clause forbids racial preferences in state university admissions defeated. Thank you from me, John Donovan. Congratulations to that side. We'll see you next time. This Intelligence Squared U.S. debate was presented in partnership with the National Constitution Center and held at the Kaufman Center in New York City. Dana Wolf is our executive producer. Robert Rosencrantz is chairman. Taylor Quimby, Rob Christensen, and Kristen Muller are the radio producers. Damon Whittemore is the audio engineer. Claire Chang is chief marketing and digital officer. Chris Kamakawa, director of research. And I'm your host, John Donvan. For more information or to purchase tickets to future events, visit iq2us.org. This debate was brought to you with generous support from the National Constitution Center through a grant from the John Templeton Foundation. The opinions expressed during this program are those of the program participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of the John Templeton Foundation. Intelligence Squared U.S. debates are made possible by generous contributions from listeners like you and with visionary support from the Connor Davis Family Foundation, David A. Coulter, the Rosencrantz Foundation, and more. From Intelligence Squared U.S.,
4: Thank you.